This morning we have two readings. So Genesis 3, starting at first one. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man said and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snakes deceived me, and I ate. Please turn with me now to the second reading, Romans 1, 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God had made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This is God's word. Thank you, Mark. Morning, everyone. My name is Pete Snow. I'm one of the ministers here. It'd be nice to meet you afterwards, if I never have. We are uh, we're focusing on Genesis 3, 7 to 13 this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our creator God, we, uh, we come to you this morning praying for a blessing from your word. And our Father, I pray that uh, whoever we are this morning and wherever we're at, whether this is the first time we've ever heard this story or whether it's the thousandth time, pray you'd have a blessing for each of us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hide and seek. Is there any more brilliant, innocent, simple childhood game than hide and seek? You know, I hide, you find me. It takes about three seconds to explain the rules, doesn't, we? doesn't it? If, if you manage that, then we'll swap round and you hide and, and I'll find you. And you can play it with the group. Uh, it's fantastic. I remember one particularly memorable game of hide and seek, as they go, uh, when I, was, I must have been 10 years old and I was, I was playing with a bunch of friends and... Um, of course, I'm awful at hiding. You try hiding these arms and these legs. It doesn't work, uh, especially when you're growing up and trying to learn how to control them all. Uh, my, my, my friend Hannah, she was, oh, she was, a, she was tiny. She was, she was particularly petite. And I swear, we, we turned the whole house upside down for half an hour looking for Hannah. And eventually, uh, she had to come out of hiding because the game wasn't going anywhere. And it turned out she'd hidden under a shopping bag. Like... Basically, a large bag for life. You know, so she just, she just inverted it and put it on her head and crouched in the corner so it just looked like a pile of bag for life. And out she popped. She, hide and seek. Brilliant. 
hide and seek, brilliantly innocent game, until you play it relationally. It becomes a much less innocent game if you actually play relational hide and seek. You know what I mean? So if you're an employee and you decide you don't really want, really want to be in your job anymore, you've kind of had it, you've checked out mentally, you turn up to work, you're there, but you're kind of playing hide and seek with your boss. You find me. You make me do the work because I'm basically hiding. Ooh. It's not very fun anymore, is it? You're a spouse and you're there in the marriage physically, but you've kind of checked out. You're playing hide and seek. That's not very fun anymore either. You're a child and you play hide and seek with your parent. That's not a game I want to play if I'm the parent or the child, really. You see what's happened? If you play relational hide and seek, that's not a game. I've introduced barriers between us. I'm running from you. I'm hoping you don't find me. I'm hoping I can avoid you. If you're joining us, then we're here in the first chapters of the Bible, this this famous, beautiful book. We're right at the beginning, just in the first four chapters for a couple of months. We've called the series Origins of Life. And as we observed last week, those of us who are here, the Origins of Life title, that covers the good bits of life and also the bad bits. So I've been trying to argue that... um, if you want an explanation for the way the world is, if you want to look at London and see, I, I see in my worldview the way this world operates fits with what I read in my holy book, then you need an explanation for the beautiful bits and the brutal bits. And Genesis 1 and 2 gave us an explanation for the beautiful bits. God made them, and Genesis 3 and 4 will give us an explanation for the brutal bits. Humanity sinned. It's sometimes called the fall, the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. So that's origins of life. Last week, we ended with a puzzle. If you have a look down at chapter 2, verse 17. I'm still in Romans, I need to turn back. Genesis 2, verse 17. God said, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. So that was a promise God made. You eat this tree that I'm commanding, eat from this tree I'm commanding you not to, you will certainly die. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. What happens? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they died. Oh no, hang on. Ah, so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. You see what's happened? The promise that God made, one of the first promises he makes in the Bible, here's a punishment, and if you, if you break the crime, if you do the crime, you're going to have to do the time. It doesn't seem to have come true. What's happened here? The, the puzzle, the cliffhanger from last week is, why didn't they die? Was it an empty threat or a dodgy promise, or is God a pushover in the earliest chapters of the Bible? Have a look with me at verse 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you see how there's this slightly innocuous reference to the cool of the day? I think we're supposed to understand from that. that He's not just wasting time painting a verbal picture. He's not just writing a novel here and chucking in some fancy words. I think we're to understand this is the same day. This is that afternoon before the sun sets. God is walking in the garden, and here is the verdict that's about to come. This is what we're going to look at today. It's the first consequence of sin. What follows is the death sentence. And uh, we need to learn what the Bible means by death and not just assume that we know what it means. 
Let me say that again. We need to learn what the Bible means by death and not just assume we know what it means. Because I think if we all assume we know what death means, then we just think, aha, well, that is the moment my heart stops beating and there's no more breath left in my body and they lower me into the ground. Actually, the Bible means something primarily, primarily spiritual by death and then secondarily physical. Let me just try and persuade you of that. It's primarily spiritual and not physical. That is, it's an alienation from God as a punishment. In chapter 3, verse 19, we'll see next week, God does give a, fin- a physical death punishment to Adam. He says, you're made out of dust, and eventually you're going to go the way of all the other dust. They'll bury you, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And sure enough, at the end of chapter 3, there's a big angel with a sword guarding the way to the tree of life. So no more immortality for you, Adam. But the Bible also means something spiritual, because what we're going to see today in this short passage, verses 7 to 13, is that there's alienation from God, which is the main thing, the first thing. The relationship breaks first, both with God and then with each other. I think of it this way, uh, that there are, there are other words which change meaning over time, aren't there? So if you walked into someone's house uh, in 21st century London and you walked in the door and went, ah, oh, cool house, then they would take it as a compliment. I think. If you, if you did it 120 years ago in Victorian London, you walked into the house and said, oh, wow, cool house, you'd probably take it as an insult. And you know, they'd want to light a couple more fires in the grate to keep you warm because presumably you're making a comment there about the temperature in my house. You see, we understand that words change their meaning. They can add meaning over time. Here, initially, in the Bible, the word death meant a spiritual alienation. And then it acquired a physical context as well. Okay, why does this even matter? Well, it tells you what's wrong with the world. The saddest thing about the world, the saddest thing about the world is that our relationship with God died, and then our relationship with each other, or our fellow humans died, which is why we find life so hard and relation to God so difficult. Make sense? Okay, that's the main thing. I want to show you two ways in which that plays out. They hid, and then they blamed. Adam and Eve hid from God, and then they they blamed someone else. And I'll try and persuade you that we tend to do the same in our relationships too. So first of all, Adam and Eve hid from the Lord God, verses 7 to 10. Let's read. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God, and he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid. Would you know a fig leaf if you saw it? Rhetorical question. They're really big. I always thought it was a bit strange that the first point of botanical interest in the Bible was a fig leaf. Why, why, why the fig tree of all things? They're really big. So it's actually handy, if you, and they're quite durable. So you, you know, if you want to stitch them together and cover large parts of your body, then you can do it with a, a fig leaf. So Adam and Eve go foraging in the depths of the Garden of Eden. They find these really big, durable leaves, and they stitch them together, and they put them on their body. To hide from God. There we are. A fig leaf is basically a big leaf. And it's good for hiding. And uh, 
you notice the, what this actually means? That they broke one command of God, the one command, and all the innocence is gone. All the beauty of chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his life, wife were naked and they felt no shame. That is gone as soon as they've broken one command of God. So they hide behind the fig leaves. They also hide behind the trees in verse 8. Do you see that? So they get the fig leaves, but that's not enough. They actually go running into the garden when they hear the, the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And presumably there's an irony here. You know, God gave them the whole garden to enjoy. There were all these trees in which they could taste pomegranates and passion fruits and papayas. They, all these things they could have done. All these minerals to dig out of the ground and explore. All the opportunities for good work. And they go and hide behind them rather than using them. What a sense of innocence lost this is presumably supposed to be. I think we're supposed to read this and mourn over chapter 2. The Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, when I'm in my right mind, I want to be there. I want to be on that afternoon stroll. I want to be walking with the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the day, discussing how to care for the planet. Lord God, what is the best way to look after these animals? What is the best way to ensure that the planet flourishes? I want to be there discussing with him what plants we're going to plant next and cultivate and what happens if we graft this to that. I want to pose ethical conundrums to the Lord God and be flabbergasted as he just comes up with an answer as easy as you like, which incidentally is what Jesus does when he comes to earth. But instead, they hid. They thought that a few bits of green shrubbery could conceal what they'd done. Criminals sometimes uh, hide to get away from what they've done, don't they? There's an epic police chase. And sometimes the criminal gets away with it. They manage to find a corner of the country, some part of an overseas territory where the police can't find them. I was reminded of Zokar Tsarnaev. Do you remember him? One of the Boston bombers. And uh, he kind of thought he got away with it for three days after the Boston Marathon bombings in 2013. And the police couldn't seem to find him. Until we've got a picture here. I don't know if you remember this photo. The thermal imaging cameras came out and they discovered him in a part of uh, Watertown in Boston, hiding in someone's boat. So you can just about make out the outline of the boat. And the helicopter found this guy hiding in a boat in an area which would otherwise have been very difficult to find. Of course, in theory, there are enough hiding places in all the world that a criminal can evade the police if they're clever enough and get lucky enough. Relationally, though, It's harder to do, isn't it? If you're not just trying to evade the police, you're trying to evade someone you're in a relationship with. So, for instance, you're an employee in a company. Let's say you work in a shop and you you began to just steal from the till. Once a week, you're the only one cashing up at the end of the day. Oh, 20 pounds. Thank you very much. I'll just take that. Eventually, the boss starts to notice that the numbers don't tally up. And there aren't that many employees in the company who have access to the till when no one else is around who could be the culprit. So relationally, there aren't that many places you can hide. Eventually, you're going to get found out. He's going to work out who it is. An employee can't hide forever. And I think in relationship, neither can we. To give you one example, I remember when I was 19, I was going on a gap year. I was going traveling uh, to do a a volunteer project overseas with some other friends. And they put us in a two-bedroom flat. Uh, with 11 people, 11 19-year-olds. It was close quarters. And uh, I was keeping this travel journal at the time, and I remember writing, uh, 
I'm a bit worried about this. Uh, there aren't many places to hide. I mean, just two bedrooms, one for boys, one for girls. They're going to be with me 24 hours a day. They're going to see all the highs, all the lows, all the character flaws, which I otherwise prefer to keep hidden. Uh, there's nowhere to hide. Relationally, often there is nowhere to hide. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God, which was a hiding to nothing. I didn't intend that to be a pun. That wasn't in the script. But I'm quite pleased with it. I want to argue with you strongly from the Bible that we all try to hide from God. That's why we had Romans chapter 1 read, because those, those, those striking words in a very important place in the New Testament, right at the start of this magisterial exposition of the gospel in, in the book of Romans, where Paul says, mankind suppresses the truth about God. They hide the truth about God. They push it down and try to pretend that everything is not very clear. I don't, I don't really need to come face to face with God because it's not very really clear to me. We, we hide the truth about God. I find it very striking that 80% of the world, the population today on the planet Earth, think that there is a God. It's widely acknowledged there just seems to be this religious consciousness in a human being where you, you go to almost every culture around the world and they seem to come up with the idea of God from somewhere. And yet we get rather good at hiding it, I think, no matter who we are, religious or not. For example, consider a person's view of the world. I'm talking about a skeptical person who might even say there is no God. Can, can, they, can they hide from God? Well, look, I think that you, it's possible to hide with a worldview if, if you know it's inconsistent and you just want to hide behind a little inconsistency. For instance, in an atheistic, humanistic worldview, Famously, the new atheists would say, we are evolved from apes. You know, that's basically where the human race came from. So we should treat each other with uh, dignity, you know, love and equal respect because we're evolved from apes. I don't think an atheist would argue with that. But you put those two things together and there's no consequential link there. We're evolved from apes, survival of the fittest, the strongest win. So let's love one another. I think you're hiding an inconsistency just in the middle there. I think you're borrowing something from possibly a biblical worldview which says all people are created equal in the image of God and therefore we should treat each other with equal dignity. Because the logical output, output of apes is that the strongest win. Friedrich Nietzsche was the most consistent atheist at pointing this out and he said, if we've got this on the screen... Judgments, value judgments concerning life for or against can in the last resort never be true. So he's saying, so if you, if you want to make a, a, a value judgment, a statement about the, the, the dignity of a person, that's not available to you if you're holding this humanistic worldview. So I think in terms of a worldview, it's possible to be inconsistent. Surely Christians, though, they don't hide at all, do they? It's just, it's just the skeptics and the atheists who do that. I think on reflection, there's bad news for us to consider, for instance, your typical churchgoer. Your typical British Church of England churchgoer. Is it possible that they're hiding from anything? Well, maybe, possibly. I mean, they may go to church every Sunday. They may be regular at some sort of midweek event. They can talk the religious language and lead in religious prayer. But I think that that can be something to hide behind too. You know what I mean? If it's, if it's a public Christianity that I present to the world, it is possible to have a private life 
which is sub-Christian, which I hide from public view. So I do everything on the outside, which is presentable, but on the inside, I'd rather people didn't see. By the way, that was me. That was, that was my conversion story. And I only, it was brought out into the open because one day a, pre, a preacher uh, came up to me and was particularly bold when I was age 17. So if he just removed the fig leaf and said, what about you? What about your Christianity? Well, consider finally, for example, uh, the, the very devout believer, the one who tries to reconcile public and private life and keep nothing off, disp- off uh, from public display. Well, I think even there, we ought perhaps to consider how we try to hide from God. You see, it is possible just to keep part of my life behind the fig leaf. Part of my life. I'm, I'm happy with the rest of my religious life. Just don't ask about my giving. I'm happy with the rest of my life. Just don't ask about my bad temper. I'm happy with the rest of my life. Just don't ask the way I relate to my colleagues or my family. No, don't look at that, Lord. Or don't ask about that, Christian friend. Please. Problem is, of course, that when God turns his thermal imaging camera towards me, nothing's hidden. You can't hide from God. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve uh, tried to hide from God. Second thing, uh, they also both blamed someone else. Adam and Eve both blamed someone else, verses 11 to 13. Do you see what happens here? There's, there's a logic. Uh, God talks to Adam, Adam says, it wasn't me, it was her. And then God talks to Eve, and she says, oh, the devil made me do it. And then God doesn't even consult the devil. He doesn't get another voice in this passage. So there's a, there's a passing of the buck that goes on in Genesis 3. Two observations here on your sheets. First of all, Adam said that Eve was worse. Let's have a look at verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. You see, it was her fault. Incidentally, God is calling Adam with a masculine singular pronouns. You can tell that if you're in the original Hebrew. So when he says, uh, what have you done? It's, it's, he's looking at Adam. What have you done? And so that's how Adam's, Adam knows he's being addressed. He's supposed to be in charge. And uh, how's this for leadership? Um, okay, it was her. Uh, and actually, I might just implicate God in it as well, because actually, God, you put here with you put her here with me, so it's kind of your fault and her fault, but definitely not my fault, you see? The bottom line, of course, is that he does eventually admit it at the end of verse 12, and I ate it. What sin comes down to, at its, at its simplest, we, we observed this last week, is a breaking of God's command. That's what theologians def- define sin as. If they can really boil it down to the very simplest thing, it's a breaking of God's command. That's why the Ten Commandments are such a big deal. Sometimes it's comforting to think that we're not as bad as other people, and I guess that's what Adam is indulging in here. But if I break God's command, I am guilty. The Bible is full of characters who comforted themselves by thinking that actually someone else is worse than me. Job's friends, particularly good at doing that. The Pharisees, they really got off on that. You know, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. And it seems it's the thing that Adam is indulging with here. Religion is full of characters all down the ages and still today who comfort themselves with the thought that, uh, at least I'm not as bad as them. At least I'm a little bit holier than now. I think we do understand here that God found it very ugly in the first place. 
And I think we understand today that it's still ugly when we see it. Adam broke God's command. And as for Eve, the second observation, the thing about her is that she says the devil made her do it. Let's have a look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. I think this is more of a 21st century way to do it. You know, it's slightly more postmodern. Uh, what have you done? Well, if only you knew about my upbringing. If only you knew the pressure I was under from the media or the, the things that my colleagues and my spouse um, engender in me, then you would understand. The devil maybe do it or any other cause I might be able to implicate. Of course, her excuse has the final three-word punchline. Did you see? Verse 13. And I ate. Snake may be silver-tongued and swept her along, but he didn't eat the fruit. Eve did. And she broke God's command too. Blaming, I think, is a bit of an art form, isn't it? I've been reading recently about the Nuremberg trials at the end of the Second World War. So at the end of the Second World War, uh, Hitler commits suicide along with one or two henchmen. But they actually, the, the, the Allies caught a lot of senior Nazi men, and they managed to apprehend them and take them to a trial in 1945 to 1946 in Nuremberg. And they were very keen that these weren't just going to be summary executions. We're not just going to put a bullet in the back of the head. We're going to show the world that this is justice. We will put specific charges before you and put you before a judge, and we will bring justice in an orderly international way. 21 senior Nazis all pleaded not guilty to the charges that were only one, a man called Wilhelm Kietel, who was the head of the German army, in his final statement, when they asked him in court if he'd got anything else to say, said anything approaching uh, an admission of guilt. He said three significant words, I have erred. And a U.S. prosecutor called Telford Taylor was struck by that. Apparently everyone was. And he said, Kietel his was the, the bravest and most thoughtful statement made that day because he blamed nobody but himself. One out of 21 Nazis, when they uh, had, had all the evidence read to them, did you in fact systematically try to exterminate the Jewish people? Oh, no, no, no not me. No, no. Uh, that, that was actually Hitler's idea. And then it was Himmler who designed the final solution. No, I, I wasn't involved. Isn't that striking? We, we make an art form out of blaming other people even when the whole world is watching. I think we can observe here that we too are somewhat practiced in the art of blaming other people. We often like to blame someone else when we're guilty. I know I got angry with you, but actually the pressure I've been under lately. Like I know I've been distant in our relationship, but the things that they drove me to, like I know I fantasize about a different life and indulge in it, and I'm not content, but it, if you saw the people that God, God had put here with me to work with you would too I know there are always mitigating circumstances I know and more importantly God knows but all of us will face his presence and his scrutiny one day the, the thermal imaging camera will turn to us on one very final day and the question will be did you break my commands it won't be an invitation to give a long list of excuses So, Adam and Eve hid from the Lord God, and they both tried to blame someone else. So, death 
Just to come back to our original thing, uh, death was originally hiding and blaming. It's like a spiritual alienation before it's a physical manifestation. We broke God's commands. And in that way, I want to say to you, death is a shame. Death is a shame. And I don't mean a, a shame in a way that we might say, oh, shame, I stepped in a puddle on the way to work and I didn't see it there and I spattered mud up my trousers. I don't mean, oh, shucks, I've spilt coffee on my shirt and I'm going to have to wash it again. I don't mean shame in that way. I mean, death is a shame. It's a thing that hangs around the neck of the human race and says, this is our direct consequence of what we did. This is a direct manifestation of the way we've treated God. That's a shame. Death is a shame. Romans 6, verse 23 in the New Testament puts it metaphorically. It says, the wages of sin is death. You see? So... You sin, and the direct result, the wages, is that you die in all the biblical meaning of that phrase. Death is a shame. It's interesting, you know, no one else, as far as I'm aware, in the Bible is called Adam. Quite a unique name in terms of the Bible. Just this one guy at the beginning. It's almost, almost as if, I guess, no one wanted to call their child Adam after that in the Bible because of the connotations. Adam is a name of shame in biblical terms. It brought death, and death is a shame. But one of the titles that Jesus Christ has come to be known by is Second Adam. Second Adam, because when he was faced with the moral scrutiny of God his entire human life, he didn't break any of God's commands. When the first Adam hid behind the tree, the second Adam stepped in front of the tree, which is sometimes the other word used for the cross, and was nailed to it. When all the scrutiny of the judgment of God was turned on him, he didn't hide behind it, he stepped in front of it on behalf of everyone else. And because when it came to blame, the first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden, said, it wasn't me, it was her. And the second Adam said, it wasn't me, it was them who punished me instead. I think here you can begin to discern the first outlines, the first contours of true Christianity and of the human race as God is going to remake it. I think you do it just by flipping these two things on, it, on their head. So the first humans tried to hide from God. Flip that on its head and you see what the, the true human race is supposed to be like. There will be no more hiding. There will just be confession and forgiveness. And then the first humans tried to blame other people. In the, in the new humanity, we will just serve other people. Instead of trying to blame it on you, I will bring trouble on myself. I will serve you instead. That's the church that God is remaking. He's flipped it all on its head through the second Adam. We're going to do something slightly different for our final prayer and say a confession together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done. And we have done those things that we ought not to have done. And there is nothing pure in us.
But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us sinners. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent. According to your promises declared to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a disciplined, righteous, and godly life to the glory of your holy name. Amen.